Well, good morning and Merry Christmas, and I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and I appreciate you bearing with my voice today. It's that time of year. Uh, Luke chapter 1. Well, one of the things, as you're turning there, one of the things I've been working to emphasize here this Christmas is uh, with the birth of Christ is the breadth and the vastness of it. Uh, Too often we just see it as this little uh, image, but it's far greater than that. The birth is not just about some isolated moment in time. And the birth of Christ is not just some touchy-feely moralistic story either. And it's it's not some caricature story with, you know, a baby in a, a manger wrapped in bright white towels that were just washed in downy fabric softener and Uh, There next to them were these clean barn animals, all with happy, smiley faces. Uh, And and then there there was not a serenade going on by a little drummer boy. And uh, there also were not, uh, if you will, three kings right at the birth moment that had just stopped in and had their presents wrapped at Nordstrom's. That just wasn't the reality of everything going on. Um, The birth is far beyond some kind of hallmark image. And it's far wider than that. It's literally an eternity past to eternity future thing. It's, it's the story of Genesis 1, Colossians 1. It's the story of that one that was involved in, in that time and in those situations. It's a story of, the, as we talked about, the 10 to the statistical impossible reality of one fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament one. That's the one that we're talking about at this Christmas. It's the Revelation 5 one, the one that's worthy to open the scroll one. It's the Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse with the flaming eyes. That's the one that we're talking about at Christmas. It's the Revelation 22 one, the one that's on the throne for all eternity. That's the one that we're talking about at Christmas time. It's the Luke 133 one. He will reign and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's what this is all about. The birth depicts the entirety of God's redemption story. Secondly, one of the things I've been really trying to emphasize and press this Christmas is that the birth depicts that the Lord is in full control. Uh, He's not making things up as he goes along. From day one, he's at it all figured out. At creation, all figured out. When sin came into the picture, all figured out. Throughout the whole Old Testament, it was all figured out. Through the 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's been all figured out. Uh, Into the New Testament, through the barrenness of Zechariah and Elizabeth, for the decades of barrenness, God knew exactly what was going on with all of that. He was in full control. He was also in full control in the dice that led to Zechariah going into the temple that day. God was in full control and Gabriel standing on the right side of the incense altar as we talked about and God showed up and stepped in. God's in full control when he came out of the temple and zipped his lip. Uh, God was in full control with the whole situation of Elizabeth becoming pregnant. God was in full control when Mary became pregnant as a virgin. Uh, Friends, just a reminder, the Lord's in control of it all. And it's not just in control of it all in the past, but that's a present reality just to have so much hope in. In fact, look at the very first few words of our text for today. Chapter 1, verse 57. First four words uh, in the English Standard Version. It says, now the time came. 
New International Version, it says, when it was time. I like that. It's time. If I were to ask you, what's the time? You'd probably naturally be looking at your watch. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in the whole plan of God's redemption story, it's time. It's time for this to happen. And friends, it's time. That's what this is all about. God is right on time, always on time. Uh, This just magnifies the reality of what's taking place. We aren't just living beings thrown out in an abyss of nothing and die into nothing. Really? Really? That's it? Seriously? Down in your soul? That's what it's about? We just live and die in nothing? No, no, no. There's something far bigger than this. And the birth of Jesus Christ at Christmas time is one of those times that just brings it all into view. God's in control, and he's got it all figured out. Let's keep reading. Verse 57. Now the time came, came for what? For Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a what? (laughs) Just want to make sure you're with me. Bore a son, not a daughter, which would have been fine, except for the fact Gabriel said you're going to bear a son. It didn't have any kind of funky things to be able to find out before the birth, except Gabriel told Zachariah exactly what was going to go on. She gave birth to her son. And I love this, verse 58, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Isn't that cool? It's not just the fact they were happy for her. They even had an understanding that God showed up in the reality of Elizabeth and this older woman, there she has a baby boy and they're thrilled for her at the end of verse 58. And they rejoiced with her. No, it's a typical, let's keep reading, let me keep reading. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. That was the typical thing of the day. Uh, this was a boy, uh, it would have been named after someone in the family or after the father. Uh, but, verse 60, but his mother had answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, What? None of your relatives is called by that name. This is like out of the ordinary, Elizabeth. What is the deal here? What is going on? What's happening? John. Uh, The word John at the time meant Jehovah is gracious. Uh, Listen, put these two together. I was talking last week. The name of Jesus is Jehovah is salvation. The one that comes before the one, John, his name is Jehovah is gracious. He sure is, because guess what? The one's coming. And by the way, right on time. The one's coming. God is gracious. And because the one, the one who brings salvation is coming. Verse 62, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to be called, what he wanted him to be called. Interesting. In this, I think this is the verse that potentially gives you the idea that when Zechariah uh, uh, was made mute, as we had seen before in the temple, that this is very possibly where not only was he mute, could he not talk, but he could not hear. Because why would they have to make signs? They could just talk to him. Hey, Zach, what's the deal? He's like, can't talk. But I can hear. But if we get the picture here, they're making signs to him, trying to describe what's going on. It had to be kind of funny to watch. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Verse 63, and he asked for a writing tablet. Uh, here he pulls out the Etch-A-Sketch. 
And he writes, his name is John. <laughs> and they all wondered. <laughs> Here's the etch sketch guys. John. What? This is like so unnormal. This is so just like, this isn't the way it's done, Zach. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Even this, friends, just brings home the reality of this is something completely unlike anything else that's been taking place. And look at this, verse 64. And immediately. Okay, if you haven't been here for a while, I got lovingly mocked on this at Christmas at the plaza, and I take it as love, as well as I do miss my jeans. And uh, I am going to try and finish early today. Uh, other than that, I don't remember anything else about that song. <laughs> anyway, immediately it has this emphasis of right now. And this is a big deal because look at this. And immediately his mouth opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke. I mean, right when the Etch-A-Sketch is done, he turns it around. No, his name is going to be John. Right then, bam, he can speak. Uh, God is so on top of it. It's not like, oh, yeah, it's about time the timer just went off. No, no, no. God knows exactly what's going on. And right at this moment, God allows Zechariah to speak. And what does he speak? I love the next two words at the end of verse 64. He speaks blessing to God. Not bitterness. Not uh, anything other than blessing to God. Boy, this was a good nine months period of time, at least for Zechariah, just to get some perspective. Verse 65, essentially, and when all of this happened, fear came upon all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about. Look at the alls. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what is the deal? With his child. And then the final statement. For the hand of the Lord was with him. They knew God had been active. Something was happening here. And they asked the question. What is up with his child? Let me just say this. That is a fantastic question. I love people who ask questions. In fact I think there are far too many people today. Who do not ask questions questions and do not ask enough questions we live in a world where honestly uh, people don't think very much and i love the fact that here they are asking a question and they're verbalizing it and so let me let me ask a question of their question did they pursue getting an answer if you've got a question get some answers and i'm curious it's interesting because we don't know and that's the kind of stuff for me that I'm always intrigued by. So what did they do with their question? Uh, did they pursue getting an answer to their question? If so, where did they go? They go to all their buddies in town and it's like, hey, let's sit around and talk about what do you think? And, and what do you think? And what do you think? Now, scriptures say we should get counsel. But even the question from that is, is what's their authority? You put 10 people in a room, just 10 random people picked from around the world or America or wherever you want, and you ask them, so how does life work? How does it happen? What's the purpose? You're probably going to get at least five different perspectives. 
And I come back to the question as wanting to be a thinking person and asking the question, on what authority do you base what you believe? How do you know? What authority did they go to? I'm curious. Did they go to the scriptures? Because they had the Old Testament. They had the whole Old Testament to be able to at least go and, and sort of was had even in their mind to do that. You know, and I realize the Old Testament, there's a lot of stuff in there and there's, there's a lot of reading in there and, and I get all of that. And, and yet I think we could agree it's easy to read like the first few pages and the last few pages of any book, true? I mean, even if it's like a, the most ginormous book on the planet, you can generally read the first couple pages and the last couple pages. How about just doing that, you guys? Maybe in the first couple pages, they may not have gotten their answer, Exactly. Let's just kind of say they weren't getting it. But in the last couple pages, they would have gotten their answer. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the last two verses of the whole Old Testament basically says there's going to be one coming before the one comes. And what's the one that's going to come? What's the deal about that? Well, in the very beginning pages, Genesis chapter 1 or chapter 3, it talks about there's going to come one who's going to bruise Satan's head. That one. And there's one that's going to come before that one. Why didn't they go there? Could they have gone there? At least they could have said, gee, maybe this is that one. Uh, It begs the question I have to ask because we don't just want to do knowledge. Where do you get your questions answered? I mean, when life throws you a curveball, when you're dealing with a trial, when you're just trying to figure life out, when you've got conflict, when you have anger going on, or depression going on, or guilt going on, or life questions going on, where do you go? Really, the ultimate question is this. What is your authority? I don't mean you, but what is your authority base? Is it you? Because I would ask as thinking people, think about that. Because if you say this is what I believe because that's what I believe, then ultimately you are the all-knowing source. You are placing yourself in the seat as God. And you have the choice to do that. But just understand what you're doing when you do that. I love people that ask questions, but the big question is where do you go to get your questions answered? Is it just derived from their old world for you? Is it derived from your own worldview? Is it derived from just your buddies or your parents or Dr. Phil or Wikipedia? I, I don't know. Where do you go? It's one of the first things you think, I wonder what God has to say about this. God wouldn't have anything to say about this part of my life, really. How do you know? Or if you go to people, are they taking you to Scripture? Where do these people go? Don't know. But they could have gone to Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. They could have gone to Malachi 3, verse 1. They could have gone to Isaiah 40, verse 3, and they would have found their answer. They know who this one could have been. Well, Elizabeth gives birth gives him the name John, Jehovah's gracious. All are wondering and questioning, and it's time for Zechariah to speak up and bring some truth to the table. Verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... I just want to pause there a moment. 
I don't want to get too deep theologically into this, but I think it's very interesting. We've now seen three people where that's taken place. Uh, Mary, Elizabeth, and now Zechariah. All are, the text tells us, filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, We don't see any interesting languages going on at the time when that happens. What we do see is we see truth declared. Understandable truth declared. Knowledge understood. I just say in that whole theology realm of being filled with the Spirit, it's interesting that they don't come back to these three. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Redeemed, it means set free by paying a price. He's redeemed them, and he has raised up a horn of salvation. The horn at the time was a power of strength and might. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant of David. Uh, Going to David, there's such an Old Testament theme going on here. And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, Dulas, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, now he's speaking to the child, and you, child, can you imagine him just looking at John, baby John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Hey, Zechariah knew who this was. And so Zechariah brings some truth to the table. For you will go before the Lord, the one before the one, to prepare his ways, to give knowledge and salvation of his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. It's really cool. Beautiful sunrise this morning. That's the image. Sunrise coming, bringing light to the darkness to guide our feet into the way of peace. Boy, they needed peace at the time in that day. Zachariah is filled with the Spirit and he speaks truth, biblical truth. I'm just going to keep on going. Verse 80 And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And he's like jungle boy until he shows up. Chapter 2, verse 1. It's now time for the one to be born. The one has been born. Now it's time for the one to be born. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered This was the first registration when Mr. Q, I I have 50 times tried to work on pronouncing that name this week, and every time it just sounds like an insult to the guy. When Mr. Q was governor of Syria, let me pause. Uh, Caesar Augustus. Caesar was born uh, Octavius or Gaius Octavian. He was the grandnephew and later adopted son and designated heir of Julius Caesar. This is a real guy in history. Uh, He was seen at the time as the lone uh, Roman ruler of the day. And uh, in fact, he was given so much honor in the day that this was an actual ancient inscription uh, in stone that was uh, uh, brought up with archaeology. It says this, divine Augustus Caesar, talking about this guy, a son of a god, 
imperator. That means victorious general of land and seas. The benefactor. And it says at the end of it, and savior of the whole world. How ironic. How funny ironic. Your the savior is being born under the realm of the little small s savior. Not the irony of what's happening here. And they get registered. Uh, Rome took a census every 14 years and uh, you would have to come and do that and that was part of the ta- for tax purposes. Jews were exempt from the military at the time, but they still had to pay taxes. Uh, nothing changes today. <laughs> the census was an intrusive reminder, therefore, to the Jews that, listen, you're not in control. Rome is overlording you and you pay taxes to us. You see that through the Gospels when they talk with Jesus about the tax. And each Jewish male was uh, needed to come to their, uh, their city of where their father's name was and they would record their name and their occupation and property and their family. And uh, in this, you can see Caesar Augustus makes the decree. But remember, God is in control. And if Augustus was here, he would say, yeah, I made that decree because I had to by law. But yet God's like, I'm behind it all, boys. I'm behind it all. Because the decree is made for the purpose of moving my uh, Mary and Joseph some 80 miles from Nazareth over to Bethlehem. Uh, just to the right place. At the right time. I mean, again, God knew the time of the whole census. He knew the time that needed to be pregnancy. He's got it all in control. It's so beautiful. Verse 4. Verse 3, I'm sorry. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to to the city of David. By the way, Luke doesn't tell us about uh, uh, bringing uh, Joseph uh, on board here. He doesn't tell every detail, and that wasn't part of what he saw important. But you can go to Matthew and find out that God in his goodness and his graciousness came to Joseph and said, let me tell you a story, my friend. Uh, You're... you're, uh, Seriously, your uh, gal you're going to about marry here in a little bit? Yeah, thank you. She is uh, pregnant. And by the way, it's all okay, my friend. It's all okay. And he jumps on board. He went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And by the way, how cool is this? Bethlehem, that word means house of bread. What a perfect place for the bread of life to be born. From the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So he he brings his very pregnant wife some 80 miles. (laughs) Bless her heart as a guy. I'll say bless his heart, man. (laughs) Verse 6. And while they were there, the time came. I love that. Friends, don't, 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 don't miss these little nuggets of just depth. While they were there, I mean, right there in the right place at the right time, while they were there, uh, God was in control. And the time came, and the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger 
because there was no place for them in the inn while they were there. You know, people get kind of caught up in the thing of, was it a barn? Was it a cave? Was it under a house? I'm just being frank with you. I don't really care because that's not the point. The point of it was this is a lowly birth. This was not in the presidential suite. This is not anywhere that you would think that the creator of the universe, God in the flesh, would be born. Born there? Are you kidding me? Born there to this poor, engaged, no-name, divinely pregnant couple from an unkosher part of Israel and giving birth in a lowly place? Are you kidding me? No, see, you've got to understand the whole redemption story. This is not the part of the story that God comes and it's like, hey, I'm God, fall on your knees. Know this, that is coming. But this isn't the time. This is the time when the one comes in flesh to do for you and I what we cannot do for ourselves. This is the time for lowliness to happen. This is the time for our creator to be amazing and stunning. I mean, this is the, I'm so desperate in my sin. You are so desperate in your sin that we can't even see straight to get through of it or out of it. We can't wash it off. We can't earn it off. We can't buy it off. We need a savior. And so a savior comes, our creator. And he comes in like a low dollar facility. Because it's setting the stage for how the whole, his whole uh, life in the flesh is going to be. The birth is about the creator stepping in. The birth is ultimately about the cross and the empty tomb. The, the birth is about the full work of all of redemption. Philippians chapter 2, though he was God, he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant. By the way, doulos. If you're new, we've been talking about that word over some weeks in the past. Servant, we usually translate it, but it really means slave. You get that? All these weeks, I've brought that up periodically for this point. To come and understand that he came in the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Therefore, the Father has highly exalted him, Philippians 2 says, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the coming as a doulos in our place. So when you look at the manger scene, do you get stuck on that time of a hallmark image? Or do you see way more than that? My friends, this is 3D. From eternity past to eternity future. You've got to see the whole story. From the Genesis 1 to the Revelation 22. And I'm just asking today, this Christmas, do you know the whole story? Do you? I'm talking to a person who maybe is at a place where it's like, I don't even know if I like, buy into any of this. To the person who is like, I've been uh, received Christ and a follower of Christ for decades. I'm talking to both. 
Do you see Christmas as the whole redemption story? Because it is. Jesus is not your boyfriend. Jesus is not interested in being dated. Hey, married couples, you know exactly when you got married. You know exactly the point in the time and the place where you entered into a covenant relationship with the person. You know that time. And I'm talking about something like that. Have you come to a place, not where you just know about the Lord and are like, yeah, that's there. But I'm talking about, have you come to the place where you've stepped across the line, you've driven the stake in the ground, you've received Christ as your savior, and you are living that out whenever that happened? Do you know him? No, no, no. Are you his doulos? That's what we're talking about. Well, what we're going to do here is we're going to celebrate the, the big picture of the birth of Christ today uh, by taking communion. And as we prepare for that, I'd, I'd like for us to take 10 here and sit back. And I'd like for us to listen to the telling of the whole story. This is a very unique telling of the whole story. So I'm going to ask that you listen intently because it's 10 minutes. And guess what? In 10 minutes, eternity past to eternity future is going to be laid out. This is the whole story. So I'll just say buckle up. The birth is about all of this. Let me tell you a story. It's no ordinary tale. No, it's the ordinary from which every other story hails. It's the story of God. It's the story of history. And I'm not the author, no. The author is a glorious mystery. See, long before he would put his pen to the paper, long before there was time or before there was matter, he was there all alone. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, everlasting in existence, completely satisfied, needing absolutely nothing. He was happy in himself and his joy was overflowing. The Son in the arms of his holy, righteous Father, the Spirit overshadowing, all glorifying one another. So why would this God even bother to create the fountain of all happiness? Can you improve upon this state? Well, the joy within himself welling up at such capacity was so full, it must be shared with a glorious society. So the mighty author, quill in hand, to share his infinite mind, his love, his joy, sat down to write his once upon a time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made all things to reflect his beauty and his worth. Mountains, rivers, oceans, trees, all gladly testifying. Endless stars and galaxies declare his glory shining. He made it all and it was good. And to culminate his work, he fashioned man and breathed to life his special ball of dirt. Man came to life with blinking eyes and was welcomed by God's face. They walked with him every day and night. There was peace and no such thing as shame. God said, be fruitful, fill the earth, and eat from any tree, except for this one, because if you do, you'll surely fall from me. Now, why do this and give this choice? Because he is writing a story, and he's about to show the whole world the fullness of his glory. Conflict enters early on in the script with a snake in the garden doing what he does best, running his lip. Flashback to when this evil was created. He was an angel of heaven who fell when his head got inflated. Banished from God and from his endless mercy, he came down to earth to tempt us with the unworthy. So there in the garden on an ordinary day, he came to the woman and said, Did God really say that you should not eat from every tree in the garden? He must not want your happiness or you'd have total freedom. 
So pridefully they listened, sinfully they took, and scorned their creator as they ate forbidden fruit. Injustice, my friends. This is injustice. That God should be seen and then treated as a nothing. That man should completely forfeit his joy and dig for fleeting pleasures in the gutters of this world. Fallen now is all mankind and sure to face his judgment. A world of pain, of toil and strain and hell forever after. But God would make a promise to preserve himself a people. And through the brokenness of mantle, could there shine a hero? The plot line continues, some character development, all supporting actors, all fantastic as embellishments. Noah found favor in God's holy sight, and when God sent the floods, he mercifully preserved his life. We come to Abraham, and God made him a covenant. He said, I will bless you, make your offspring abundant. To Isaac and to Jacob, God would come and do the same, and though many dangers came to threaten his perfect plan, the story would go on with the author's full control, and he would lead his people everywhere that they should go. Flash forward now, 400 years, in Egypt there's a Pharaoh who doesn't like God's people growing numerous in freedom. He made them slaves, but God came down and chose his servant Moses, a burning bush, a call to go his presence was his promise Moses tell that Pharaoh now to let my people go so they can freely worship me in the place that I will show plagues numerous God will prove that he is the I am that Pharaoh's rule is like a pawn in his glorious hand the waters part the millions leave to follow their great Savior he guided them provided for them though they were so ungrateful at Sinai God gave the law so perfect and so pure his people soon discovered though they could not obey these rules they tried, they failed, they tried, they failed, compelled to live in sin. They'd bow to worship idols and they'd bow to God again. They said to God, give us a king and that will make things better. God, their rightful king, assured them this would be a fetter. They insisted, God relented, gave to them their kings. Some were good, led them to him, some brought idolatry. Then came the prophets, turn back to God. Sometimes the people listened, but mostly they just gave a nod because they all wanted to be him. God will not wink at your sin, the prophets would all say. The people rose to eat and drink, they left to go and play. God finally seemed to have enough and brought a blaring quiet. The prophets ceased, the people waited 400 years of silence. Enter our protagonist, mostly unannounced. The plot is quickly rising now. Who is this guy? Nobody really knows. He's meek, he's humble, unordinary hero. But the craziest thing about this character is, well, unlike the other characters, this is the author himself. His name was Jesus. He was born of a virgin, fully God. He was perfect, fully man. He was learning, different from all the others, but tempted just the same in every single way we are, yet without a single sin. He made the lame to jump and he caused the blind to see. And unlike the religious leaders, he had some real authority because he came from on high and he came to redeem, not to be served, but to serve his haters and enemies. He loved, he gave, showed us the heart of the author, claimed no glory for himself because he came from his father and we hated him for it because we wanted to be God. Despised and rejected, we esteemed him not. Conflict escalating now. It starts with a betrayal. Judas whores his eternal Lord for 30 pieces of silver. A final meal of prayer and then they head into the garden where Jesus sweat with drops of blood preparing for our pardon. The soldiers took the Lord away and led him to a trial. Are you the son of God? They say I am. There's no denying. Except of course for his disciples who left their Lord in fear. Jesus looked up to the sky. He was all alone from here. They led him to the praetorium and then they began to beat him. Who hit you? They would shout and say, oh father, please forgive him. They made his back a bloody mess. They whipped him till he lost his breath. They threw the cross upon his wounds, the weight of sin, 300 pounds. 
the great eternal Lord of all, the author of all things, now like a lamb to the slaughter, would this be his defeat? They nailed him to the rugged cross. They shouted out, where is your God? He said, have you forsaken me? He takes a breath, his final three. It is finished. The Savior's cry. And then he bowed his head. The author of life, the Lord of all, the Son of God, is dead. They laid his body in a tomb. Then everything was quiet as God's people find themselves again in everlasting silence. Two days pass. On the second morning after Jesus died, Mary went to the tomb to take a look inside. And when she arrived, she was met by an angel. She fell to the ground, but he said, there's no danger. This Jesus, Jesus, is he the one you seek? Mary, he is not here. He is risen indeed. Climax is true. Every good story has one. That part where you feel a slight shift of momentum. Mary sprints to go tell the other disciples, the Lord, he's alive. He's alive like he promised. Peter and John go to see for themselves, but there's nothing there. Perhaps he truly lives there. And Jesus' words came flashing to mind. They will kill the Son of Man, but after three days, he will rise. Momentum is surely building now. The enemy is limping. Jesus finds the 12, and then he gives to them the mission. All authority is mine, all in heaven and on earth. Go and tell them I'm alive. Go and tell the whole wide world, and don't get slack. I'm coming back. Acts now, the church is born, the Holy Spirit given. The news of Jesus, like the most contagious sickness spreading. Thousands saved, a mighty wind is blowing through the region. The promise God gave to Abraham, we're finally starting to see it. Repentance and forgiveness preached all in the name of Jesus. Sinners and saints alike proclaim our God has come to save us. The Gentiles hear the story and the news is blowing up. The plan is working, gospel spreading from Asia to Africa. Martyrs laying down their lives because they know this story is true. It's a story like no other. It's a movement you cannot undo. Constantine tried to slow it down and turn it into steeples, but an angry monk from Germany wrote some holy gospel thesis. It spread like fire and then it came to America by sale and here we are the 21st century because the gospel cannot fail it's the greatest story that's ever been told by the greatest author the world has ever known but there is some still left to go yes there is some still left to go see go was the command to every tribe and nation to carry this great story to this dying generation because when this gospel finally spreads across the whole of earth we're going to hear a trumpet sound and Jesus will return heaven will be opened and a white horse shall appear and the one who sits upon it all his enemies shall fear his eyes will be like fire and his purpose will be glory justice for all evil life for all who love this story He'll come to judge the quick, the dead, and all who trod this world. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Death and Hades he will throw into the lake of fire and Satan too. That serpent foe, that coward, that old liar. The church will rise, surround the throne, and clothed in glory his. With every tribe and tongue, we will worship him, singing, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb, the Lamb who has been slain. Blessing and honor, glory and power forever to his name. And for ages and ages we will sing the praises of our God and King. It's the greatest story that's ever been told by the greatest author the world has ever known. Yeah, the bad guys lose, the good guys win. Jesus is Lord of all the end. Communion servers, would you uh, go ahead and get prepared and get in place? Jesus and John, after telling uh, the people that he was the bread of life, says this, uh, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. All of what you've just heard is all the reality is in the birth of Jesus Christ. If you've come to that place where, as Jesus said here, look up to me. If you've come to that place where you have looked up, you've driven the stake in the ground, received Christ as your Savior, communion is for you. This is a time to remember not only the birth, but especially the death. If, uh, if you're at a place where you're not sure this, where you're at with Christ, or if this isn't something that's a part of you, I just, ask, just stay in your seat. No, nothing's going to be weird for you about this. But uh, this is a time to celebrate. This is a time to celebrate the birth. This is a time to celebrate the death, the resurrection, and the future coming. Let me pray before we take communion. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness. Father, I pray here as folks get up and grab the bread and the cup and then come back to their seat and wait for us to take together. Lord, I just pray that we would remember what this is all about. Birth in a lowly state is because you've come to pay the price for sin. God, I thank you that you've done that because we are without hope otherwise. May we fall on our knees. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.